0: And welcome to Fashion Talks, a podcast about observing the world through the lens of fashion from CAFA, the Canadian Arts and Fashion Awards. I am your host, Donna Bishop, and I'm joined today with an amazing guest, Carly Stochik. So glad you're here, Carly. Thank you. Carly is known as being one of Canada's premier trend curators and is a trend director for an array of clients with 15 years of experience in branding, design, research, and presentation. A recognized talent in the lifestyle, fashion, and research industries, formerly the market editor and senior trend specialist for WGSN, the world's most elite online trend forecasting agency for six years. She worked across music, film, design, marketing, and recently presented her latest trend forecast, the builds and collapses of dimensions on the trendscape at the prestigious MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which we're going to talk about more specifically later. I can't wait. Uh, She has experience working with both luxury and mass market brands from Gucci, Miu Miu, Prada Group, HBC, Joe Fresh, P&G, Starbucks and Holt Renfrew to name a few. Carly, you are a busy lady. I sure am. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So we're going to jump into the whole notion of trend forecasting and what that means. So let's just start out with the terms trends or on trend have become so common. Um, can you give us a brief history on where the idea of things that are trendy and trend forecasting came from.
1: Okay, well... First interesting point on the nomenclature and the popularity of it, um, you know, of being trendy or on trend um, in order to ignite this discussion. I mean, especially given the fact that one of our, you know, the trend industry's primary functions is making ethnography, so targeting and naming, more of the unexplored and unexpected directions and storylines and style, really making them totally digestible. I mean, I feel like we're the ones that come up with that formulation, like X is the new wall. and we're masters of portmanteau. Um, But I always say that we trend experts are really the academic nerds of the fashion industry. Research and investigation is constant. Um, The trend forecasting side of fashion does cast a wide net across the industry and it really links other oceans of business back to design. Influencing the direction of style can be cited as early back as Beau Brumnell, um, who had the ear of King George IV and is credited with the genesis of dandyman style. And we know that. I mean, I like to think of him as just the earliest influencer. <laughs> I did not know we can trace it back that far. That is so cool. Oh, yeah. When you have the ear of King George and you're basically telling people, oh, we don't need to look like Russians with beards and shaving and grooming and ascots. Yeah, that all came That's about. Amazing. Um, and we trend forecasters, like myself, Um, I feel like coupled with industry trailblazers like you or anyone listening to this podcast, really, we define the way in which the world looks and behaves about two years out. And it covers everything, every industry, every category, every brand, every product, every campaign. Um, You know, it's almost daunting. And I always say I'm in the business of inspiration and change. Trends dig deeper, and they look at the elemental underpinnings into our morphing hyperculture and present both creative and strategic executions for all kinds of facets of the industry. And it's also chicken or egg theory. I mean, at what point are we igniting a trend or a look or an aesthetic? And at which point are we reporting on it? You know, I quite... find that, so it's almost like a chicken or the egg kind of what situation, ca- which right? Which came first. Mm-hmm. It's cyclical, and that feeds into the zeitgeist of life. I mean, fashion has a history as old as cuisine. Think about it. We've been feeding and dressing ourselves since the dawn of time. So true. Uh, So where many of the earliest trends were birthed out of necessity, um, the uptake by masses continues to change the narrative. And, for example, I mean, I like to think about, like, you know, let's say wartime, blackout curtains giving way to, you know, wearing black as a garment, um, wearing black in an outfit, which was not... um, which was not popular until that point, uh, or war rationing giving way to austere or modest or utilitarian dressing. So, like I say, style is not exclusive to apparel and that's why it's called lifestyle. It's a reflection of our lives. And trend forecasters that focus creative storylines and introduce top creatives and professionals around the world to ideas for their brands or their collections. I mean, we're all storytellers. You're a storyteller. It's today. all about storytelling. It's all about
0: storytelling. And I just like there was so much in what you were just sharing there. Sorry. I just want to <laughs> no, it's amazing. I just want to make sure I can distill a couple of things sure. because initially it's almost like um, opportunity or necessity, like you were talking about with the blackout yeah. um, blinds during the wartime, as mm-hmm. part of you know trends came out of need, right. um, but you also you mentioned at the very beginning about being you know the fashion nerd which I think is so hilarious Um, about the research like what does that look like like are you literally like constantly having your spidey senses up when you're walking down the street like watching people do you have an army or like are there an army of other people who like report in like what does kind of just like the just quickly what are the
1: nuts and bolts of what that research looks like I mean it's twofold I always when I present and when I presented my recent trend forecast, I added in a little anecdote from when I was a kid, which, I mean, I can go through it now, but it's one of those things that, you know, on one side, I truly do think you're born with it. In 1986, we lived in Connecticut, and my mother, who's a Professional shopper, in a sense. (laughs) Professional level shopper. She's a next level (laughs) shopper is what it was. (laughs) Go mom. (laughs) We would go to, we lived in Connecticut in 1986, and we would go into Manhattan and go on these wonderful, like, Saturday shopping sprees. And after about a seven or eight hour stint, um, I was about eight years old. And I remember my mom, we left Bergdorf, our big department store, and my mother had her hands filled with all of these bags. And she went, "Hoy, well, that was a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> and it was. <laughs> and she looked down at me, and my face was all crunched and twisted up and with this perplexed look on my face and my, with the weight of the world on me. And my mother said, Carly, what's wrong? And I looked up at her, and I said, "Why is there no chocolate brown?" Oh. And she thought, "Well, okay, well, my kid's nuts," (laughs) and thought nothing of it. And about a year went by. We were building a house in a different part of Connecticut, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until nineteen eighty seven that my sister that my mom realized. Uh, she saw in every interior design catalog, in every Mercedes Benz, in every car catalog, in every store, on every runway, on every show and media platform, Oprah Winfrey, everyone, there was chocolate brown everywhere. And about 12 months later, she realized how her kid's brain worked. That's so cool. So I always say, if you want a taste or some a bird's eye view into what my POV is normally, it's people always think that I know the coolest thing and what's coming around the corner. And that's not an accurate reading of the role of being a trend forecaster or a right. futurist or trend curator. My curse, you know, I always say that it's my curse is that I always viscerally see and feel what's missing. And that's sort of half of it, yeah. I think. I think yeah. you're born with it. It's something that, um, that breeds that curiosity, um, that insatiable curiosity about everything around us, uh, and as it pertains to style and design and retailing, and then it just sort of filters down. And on the other side, I mean, definitely at WGSN, I mean, we have a think tank of a 150 strong just in one wow. department around the world across 64 countries. So. You know, tapping into um, conversations with neuroscientists and government officials and um, artists and people who are into every different facet of life. I mean, you can you can find inspiration everywhere. So, again, as I said, you know, ethnography is a huge part of it. So, um you're almost working like an anthropologist as well, in oh, some ways. We're going to so, give
0: birth to, like, trendsetters all over the country with exactly. this conversation. I just know it. I hope so. I just know it. So how does it work then? So there are, there are, you know, you're there, you're, you know, perhaps when you were at WGSN, who do you present this information to? Like, how, how does it go from your brain and eyes to seeing the same trends in retail or in fashion like how how does it work such that all of a sudden we're all seeing off the shoulder blouses this season
1: right you know it's funny again because you know designers or brands they're going to define how they're going to approach a collection or operate or interact with consumers around the world and in, and again, jumping into that never-ending cycle, I feel like we're just really connecting the dots, and you know, in terms of where it first c- comes to play, I mean, on a in a broad sense, you have the faith popcorn level icons mm-hmm. um, that solidified that, let's say, Bo Rommel effect in the marketplace and across industries and making trends as a vocation. Mm-hmm. But so how do people engage us? It's um, I mean, if you're working for a big agency like a WGSN, uh, that it's all about levels of access. So if you're working with us, I mean, there are so many different uh parts of that business so they can go and have access to the online library for sure um i think almost every client sort of gets that and then there are people like myself that will distill the trendscape and even the wgsn information and library and hedge maze of information and want me to look at their brand or their collection um you know, to look at the Trendscape through their lens. And that is just an, a, being an additional sounding board. Really at every level, it does matter about what you're exposed to. Um, and everyone's going to the same, especially like you asked about big brands, mm-hmm. right? So how are they all seeing those off the shoulder tops? I mean, we're all going to the same fashion shows and trade shows and we're using similar suppliers And again, we're living on the same planet. So how brands are executing collections or approaching retailing, it's gonna feel familiar at every corner and turn because they're catering to all of us, right? I mean, for the most part, we are exposing them to everything. Um, And then we distill the trendscape again for their best interest or to propel their brand forward. That distilling process speaks to answer the client's position or the public position. Right. I think the best trend professionals really pick a few areas to explore and expose and inspire any given creative team to and then they should offer handfuls of solutions in order to execute those the storylines that those creatives want to pursue. And it becomes like a vascular system feeding into fresh blood into the vital organs of the fashion industry. I also see a lot of smaller designers even so like have fashion have inspiration inspo burnout, right? You know. So yeah. whereas people don't, we're like the producers. You know, we don't need to be the stars of the show. We the people are like, oh, trend forecast is so cool and this, and yeah, because it is. But <laughs> <laughs> a lot of designers, you know, yeah. almost don't want to. They're 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 reluctant to engage with uh, trend people openly because they think it's sort of giving up their creative power, and it's not. Right. We're their creative artillery as far as i'm concerned we're arming them to do their best work and not to exhaust themselves of all their creative ideas and sometimes some you know a, a designer might have a story that is definitely their own but when you have that as an artist and you know what you want to say it's hard sometimes to take a step back and some, sometimes having that third party party unbiased opinion to shake mm-hmm. someone and say hey have you been looking maybe here or over there because that would be really great and I think that to me as a client resonates with what you're trying to say. So it's almost like if we were going to draw an analogy
0: of cuisine, the trendsetter sort of says, you know what, here are ingredients. Yeah. You are in charge of the cake, but here are ingredients that we think
1: would be delicious in a cake. Right. Or, you know, someone would even say something like, or, uh, uh, you know, a chef would say, um, I, need, I want to have a party. I want to have a cake. I want to have a bunch of nostalgic ingredients. And we'd be like, great. Well, now here are the foraged, you know, or you could even take it a step further. Here right. are the foraged ideas. Or do we want to, you know, feed into other big, big ideas and macro trends that are going on? So it just makes your story kind of more... Detailed. Yeah. Robust. it's 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 giving substance to it. Now, the funny thing, though, with WGSN, though, because you were asking again about those off-the-shoulder tops, um, and I know I was really interested when I first got to WGSN. The one thing I wanted to know is who were the top three clients
0: of this massive,
1: massive company. And I got there in 2007. Everything was changing then. And I thought for sure it was going to be the Walmarts and Targets. and But when I did find out who those were... Um, Do uh, we get to know? Uh, <laughs> you can I tell was, me later. I was going to say, yes. <laughs> I was going to say, you have to engage me to <laughs> yes, get to the, fair the, enough. the top secret stuff. Um, but I saw a couple of incredible examples right away of how trends can permeate the marketplace on a mass brand level. Um, and when I was with WGSN in 2009 and 10, we did... Um, because they have such an unfathomable reach in the market, we did like a little bit of a case study. We took two of the biggest brands in the world. I'm talking huge, huge. Um, And used the same usable, uh, downloadable graphic artwork from our print and pattern library to use that same motif for the two biggest brands, um, in a bid to test the system and see if our service would dangerously overlap in the marketplace, so right. we use the exact same print for um, these two brands for millions and millions and millions of SKUs, and in the end, nobody noticed. Nobody noticed that they had all used the same. That Seriously, both Abercrombie. Were this one giant and another had yeah. used the same motif. Because once that print was used in their collection, on their item, in their colorway, on their fabrication and merchandise like in their way and yeah. sold in their space, the exercise then becomes super amusing for us in the trend business. Because it almost becomes like a nod to everyone in the pipeline who was working on it for like doing their thing. You right, know? It's like right, hey right. you hey you do you, brand. So when people are reluctant to engage trend people because they think that it's going to, um, like, not water down or, di- di- you know, dilute their relevance or, you know, being special or exclusive, that's really not the case at all. And I think that's that case study. That's
0: fascinating because that
1: really speaks to
0: how, you know, the trend is really just an idea, and it's, you know, you need to take that idea and hone it and develop it. And, you know, the creative process,
1: like it starts with the idea. So you're just a spark, really. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's about, again, seeding those ideas of inspiration. We're just seeding ideas. Um, and they're usually the accoutrement and they're additional elements to a creative's vision, that they've already know that they want to go into a certain direction we just help solidify it and substantiate
0: it that's so cool now because I've been lucky enough to hear you speak many times and we've been on panels together Mm -hmm. I recall how you've talked about how you know you've got you know the army of people with WGSN that go out and are observing and stuff but there must be some disruptions in the industry in terms of you know Instagram and people being able to like everyone's an influencer like what's Uh, what's the Everyone's an influencer. Everyone's an influencer. Everyone's a
1: storyteller and everyone's an influencer. And everyone's a goddamn designer. (laughs) (laughs) So there must be some morphing. In yeah. the trend
0: forecasting, uh, in the world, so like how how is that sitting right now? Like, what is what is the current relevance of it, given how things have been,
1: you know, ebbing and flowing? You know, it's funny because I, you know, again, many people are saying that influencers are disrupting the trend industry right now. I mean, that's really what a lot of us, as sorts of futurists or trend curators. The P. I think that it's showing a polarization within my industry, my side of the industry. Yeah. Because I disagree. I don't think that influencers are disrupting the trend industry. Hey, okay. why is that? I think that they're simply a reflective part of style and fashion, and we're still reporting on them, right? So, right. it again, there's that chicken and egg theory again. There's a reciprocity to both sides, and they cohabitate. And as much as I was thinking about it and I'm like, do we coexist? No. Mm-hmm. We cohabitate because I don't exist because of an influencer, because um, we're reporting on them. Right. You know, but, but also many other facets. But we do cohabitate in the industry. I think the trend industry used to be so secluded, and it was like this exclusive arm of fashion that we yeah, were it like kind of had a moat around it, and yeah, like you know. it's like we're like the Oz, you know, totally. we're behind a green curtain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. And I always say, like when I go to speak, I'm like, I'm gonna pull back that curtain a little bit and give yeah. everyone a peek inside. Um, yeah, it's like very skull and bones, yeah, right? Totally. <laughs> but um, it's because of where it came from. So like you asked about disruption, well, I mean, they're saying that you know influencers or anyone that is sort of mixing in the pot is disrupting it. That's not really true. I mean, the online and digital landscape where everyone has access to everything in this information age, I mean, that's just the state of play right now. That's not a disruptor. That is the state of the union. Um, and I think that our in our hyperculture, it's actually globalization. That's the biggest disruption, or that's the biggest disruptor of Mm -hmm. actual trends. Right. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Tell me more about that. uh, It's like I joke around about how. Unless you're Amish or like a mountain ma- <laughs> It's true. Unless you're an Amish or like a mountain person somewhere, there's no longer such thing as a purist or truly indigenous style anymore.
0: Right. Unless you're a hobbit like isolated in the mountains, you're going to be exposed. You're
1: exposed, and even so they're probably wearing something yeah. from, <laughs> from from Doctors. Even the hermits. That was that was that was, <laughs> that, was <laughs> that was donated to Doctors yeah. Without Borders. Yeah. So you never know. Um, and again with more you know, with those mountain people, there's no no pure style anymore. So with most creatives being super connected with trends across the board. I think it's healthy, um, and it's propelling the game forward to push boundaries and forcing trend professionals to gaze farther off into their horizon and Mm -hmm. to generate those crispy, fresh ideas. You know, so many brands think that they're doing these wonderful collaborations, these philanthropic, charitable collaborations, and they're simply just going to another part of the world. They're inspired by any given ethnic or cultural sector group, and then they go back in their you know, creating these mashups and hybrid manufacturing them and factories in Guangzhou, China, for instance, you know. It's yeah. it's not nobody's a purist anymore. No, nothing is sacred. And we in the trend industry, we look at data and metrics to substantiate the work and directions. So we know how to seed ideas and influence there. But essentially, globalization is... Um, globalization and the hyperculture, not access to mass information, but having access and understanding and tolerance of all kinds of cultures and all parts of the world, that is what is going to continue to push the boundaries and make relevant collections over just popular over popular ones
0: you're touching on something that i get so excited about whenever i have the chance to talk to you and we talk about trend forecasting and whatnot is there is such intellect and consideration and like there's there's science behind it do you know what i mean like i think so often when you hear the word trend forecaster people think you know People, you know, walking around in bubbles, living the fabulous life, you know, you know. It's
1: so funny because everyone's always like, trend forecaster, what does that mean? I'm like, oh, everyone thinks it means being an influencer and it's like, oh, orange is the new black, or actually I shouldn't say that, yeah. that's the title, but like, yeah. pink is the new fuchsia this yeah. season. You know, buttermilk is the thing. Yeah. And it's really not like there is a science behind it. And it's it's like forensic research, really. Oh, it's like the CSI of of lifestyle. Yeah, I right? know my, my place looks like, a Dexter board with with arrows and red strings going from one point to another. And as I said, we're connecting the dots. Um, And is that
0: what you were delving into at MIT? Like I really want to hear about what that presentation was and what you were able to share there. What was that experience like being down at that
1: prestigious school? Oh, wow. You know, I was still really overwhelmed by it. I'm still really overwhelmed by it now. you know having it was an honor to present to some of the brightest minds in the world and i was surprised when um, you know the content of the my pr- trend presentation you know passed a qualifying committee and i was invited there um, you know my re- so my recent trend forecast the builds and collapses of dimensions on the trendscape was really more of a macro lifestyle forecast so for mit i had to do a 20 hour research extension for to present to them and not for the areas where I speak about biomimicry and design or, you know, new tech, but, or innovations, but they really wanted to know more of fashion trends that they're not always exposed to. And they're exposed to the craziest, the craziest stuff in the entire world. So they really wanted to have a peek into the side of, uh, this side of the spectrum, trends in fashion. And they wanted to know, what what they should be looking at as they create some of the most relevant startups and start consulting for some of the most powerful companies that are driving change. Um, and these are gonna be people that they, these these people are going to be, you know, big disruptors and change agents. So what did I want to speak to them about? I spoke to them a lot about consumer demographics and em- emerging cultural behaviors. Um, to help them with their messaging and their approaches to business. I mean, also their mandate is for something like for the to work more effectively and creatively and efficiently and for the betterment of humankind. Mm-hmm. That's their mandate. Um, that's a big mandate, man. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge <laughs> mandate. But it's a good one because, yeah. you know, it just every once in a while when you sort of give up and want to tear it all up and think, well, what, what is all of this for? I mean, you realize that there are some people where, you know, they're incredibly bright and they have a mandate that's substantial. And what you're feeding in is more than just the cut of a collar or the color of a season when you realize that you can, from a fashion perspective, really style their messaging and businesses and make them feel like they're fueled to change the world a little bit. I mean, that's really great. It was really it was a more holistic look at fashion. Right. So I explained to them a little bit about some style tribes and design ideas to keep an eye out for. And who knows, right? Like one of the students might be inspired and um, signed up to work with Tesla's new innovation team. I have no idea where these people are. Yeah, <laughs> <interning> <laughs> where they land, and who going. knows? And so like, how does that relate to fashion? Well, Tesla just created a Tesla suit, which uses haptic technologies, um, you know, to feel things. Uh, and I spoke about what might be a new uniform for carrier drones, flying cars, and hover bikes. We're going to see these come to market over the next two or three years, you know, I don't think if you're going to be 12 feet above the ground, you're going to need just a normal motorcycle jacket for a hover bike. You're I'm gonna going need, to agree with you. You're going to need other things in haptic technologies, like, you know, in some cars where it leans you the other way when yeah, you're torquing yeah, or yeah, turning yeah. left yeah. or right. So it's going to need some different capabilities to it. And I also s- sort of beg the question, like, what's the new uniform going to look like? Is fashion? Real fashion is innovation, And we've seen couture designers like Margiela and Iris Van Herpen, they live in this space too. So I was surprised to see after a handful of students there that were looking to get into fashion and retailing and working with engineers to do all kinds of things like create new materials or new formats of retailing or businesses geared towards sustainability and transparency on the most authentic level. Um... I, I, it was such a mix of the crowd. And then they, they were treating me like I was a hip-hop celebrity. I was like, <laughs> That's just always Yeah, I can't wait to, like, wear my MIT. If you see me around the city, I will just be toting around my MIT hat and T-shirt, pretending and I'm wicked smart all day and all night. But they really wanted to see what was up in general as well with colors and to have dope style for the season. I love that because I think that also
0: shows such validity and credibility for the fashion industry, which I think sometimes gets painted by other industries as being one of like fluff and insignificance. It reminds me a little bit of that scene in The Devil Wears Prada where Meryl Streep takes a strip off Anne Hathaway about the color of her blue sweater. Do you know what I mean? And how, you know, it had these different incarnations and you just have no idea why that color is there on that garment at that time. And what you're doing is talking about how that pilferates into so many other areas of design, of technology, of life. Like, it's so
1: incredibly relevant. And and anyone who's been in our industry, in fashion or beauty or the creative arts, you know when you have that moment, (laughs) you mean every two weeks, (laughs) when you almost want to jump off of a building and you're constantly questioning, like, what is this really all for? especially if you're a technical designer and you're in the thick of a seasonal rotation and the schedule and you know again fits an eighth of an inch here an eighth of an inch there what makes this what makes a product good sell through and it's like you can really get caught up in that so giving substance and putting some of that magic and um relevance back into design that's also part of our job to keep the creative teams inspired and um, giving them momentum.
0: That is such, I think you've just given such a unique and valuable um, perspective on what, you know, trend forecasting is. Because I think so often we think of something being on trend because masses of people adopt it. Right yeah. away, do you know what I mean? And I think that's been the case. Like I'm reminded of in Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, The Tipping Point. Oh, yeah. He shares a story about how hush puppies in the 1990s enjoyed this bizarre renaissance because they were just being picked up by the you know hipster party kids at the time. Yeah. I don't even I don't even remember why, but it was just this movement that totally reinvigorated.
1: The brand. Oh, yeah. And and there's a lot of that. I mean, like, you can do entire brand directional uh, turns by looking at what's happening in not just what we call the trickle down, Mm -hmm. but the bubbling up, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So there's a whole side of fashion trending that caters to confirmations. And confirmations are a really important part. Ooh, tell me more about this term. It's not just about people saying, just directing and throwing out pie-in-the-sky ideas for a look or an item. That's trite, that's so surface, and it's not—again, it's not an accurate reading of what trend forecasting is about. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like saying, like when you were saying about uh, uh, masses adopting, you know, to be on trend, you know, like the color of a sweater— It's like, it's not a popularity contest only, because half of most people's high school tenure, yeah, socially could be, but remember all those little awkward moments and moments you have by yourself and in your head and wondering what kind of person you're gonna become, you know, when you're a teenager? There's a whole other part of high school and that development, and there's a whole other side to trends where you're not defining things, but you have to do the analysis and confirming things. And when I think in 2008, after about a year or so um, of WGSN, we really started expanding in a crazy way. And we needed to give confirmations. Um, We needed to start providing confirmations. And we had this one for this one direction, this macro direction, that had started two years earlier. Mm -hmm. And it had started two years earlier at the end of the the second Bush administration. We were going through a war, a lot of people were unhappy, um, employment was up, there were a lot of problems across the Americas yeah, and, a and, ac- and across Europe. And I always say, you know, we had this confirmation over two years that showed from, uh, again, ethnography and politics to what was happening. You know, we look at economics, politics, um, scientific advancements, all of these areas in the arts before we come up with three st- macro storylines of what is going to take place in the market. Right. And so there was this really dark, brooding feeling that was going on. And so by the time 2009 rolled around, I started saying to people when I was at speaking at different venues... I said, do you think that a new young mom with a baby little skull cap? I'm like, do you really think that 26 year old mom even understands what the hell punk really is? Yeah, it's no. so true. And they don't want it on their infant <laughs> for that. But, but when there's a whole mass sentiment, you know, babies traditionally didn't wear black skull caps with Swarovski little skulls on them. <laughs> like, totally. So there's, you know, again, it's not just about saying, oh, skulls are in. It's because we're feeling, and again, as artists and brands and and retailers, we're it was simply a reflection of what's happening in the world, um, you know. And and then it was funny because when uh, Obama came in, we started seeing this whole "Yes, we can," yeah, and this sort of almost happiness come about, and where we started to understand what our ties are and the importance of. Asia and China in our Western lives and what that means in terms of cartoonishness and anime and things that are brightly and avatars and this otherworldly sprightliness that was happening, you know, and we started seeing yellow become a big color and knitwear and comfort and all of these other things started to come about. So again, confirmations are really important. And right now, like because we're taking such an idiosyncratic approach to everything, especially dressing, there's... The whole side of, you know, there's defining trends and aesthetics and putting them out there, seeding ideas. And then there's also the confirmation of those ones in an uptake. And then it's all I always like to work in threes and triangles. Right. Yeah. But there's that sort of there's a third area that is the anti-trend. Right,
0: because you must hear people all the time say, you know, I don't listen to trends, I walk to the beat of my own drum, oh, I don't yeah. pay attention. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, so What do you say to those people? Like,
1: oh, yeah, because we know that everyone is another, their own artist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and everyone has their own story and their own perspective. Oh, and they don't buy into trends. Yeah. Like I like saying, like, insert biggest emoji eye roll <laughs> <laughs> here. But it really is, like, there are so many people that don't buy into the – that don't – or s- want to, you know, like acknowledge or, yeah. that they're not buying into any given trend and that they're not um, a-, a lemming, and let's say, mm-hmm. a lemming of a designer. I mean, Nor- Normcore is a great example of that. And ha- tell us a bit about NOMCOR for so people who don't understand what that aesthetic is. Um, I mean it's, it's many things. To me it more means about it was sort of the stripping away of everything that uh, f- to me it, it feels more it's the stripping away of anything that felt branded or exclusive or highly designed although it is. It's just more That's minimalist the IA, right? and constructivist and um, pared down in, in its aesthetic. I always say the idio, you know, there are two major directions that I talk about in the builds and collapses of dimensions on the transcape. When I talked about fashion, I only gave two directions stylistically. One i am called the hyper style teller, Right. And that's an idiosyncratic multi-era uh, and multi-ethnic and cultural mashup. Feels almost like Iris apple Yes,
0: Very kind of postmodern, a real pastiche
1: mm-hmm. of all kinds of different Absolutely things. Absolutely, like a haberdashi of mm-hmm. ideas coming together in one like massive mashup. And then there's the silent strong. And the silent strong, I always say that putting together collections is a lot like putting together an album of music or putting together a song. Interesting. And where the hyper style teller is like the melody, the silent strong is very much the baseline of fashion, where it's seemingly so simple and um, it's actually not. It's very sophisticated and complex and builds an entire foundation of dressing, but you know most people who adopt normcore were doing it as a way to as a backlash to you know hyper neon and um metallic and glitzy attractive palettes right so you're going with more of a monochromatic uh color palette is that silent strong
0: what people might consider to be things that are classic or timeless or does that not even play play into those two style definitions
1: um I think it plays into it, but I think it plays into both. Right, you know, there's a, the, again the yin and the yang for that, and again with you know the anti trend and people that are thinking that uh, well they're not buying into a trend. It's funny because that in itself is the, you know the adoption the mass adoption of the anti trend or um, you know going against any kind of you know aesthetic or direction that in itself is. perspective and is is their story yeah so you're you're on a trend we're all telling stories we're all telling stories and we're all influenced by things and even by not going on something like you're not they're not creating a collection to not sell it right you're always creating a collection for someone to buy it i always say you know you can design the most fabulous outlandish dramatic thing in the entire world if nobody's buying it, you're not a good storyteller, Yeah, and you're not designing. You want your story to resonate with audiences and with the masses and with consumers. So if you're thinking about something and you want to design in a way that isn't looking like everything else, there are other people that are with you. And that's where sometimes I feel like fashion takes the wrong approach. Or, you know, fashion mavens, that's in so. a sense, take yeah. the wrong approach, where, you know, why would we want to be alone? Yeah, we don't want to be too much alone. Inch- the, hence the tribe, Yeah, you know. It, and that's to to like. be too isolated in your style or design sometimes means you're going to easily be misunderstood. And I think that's a shame when people are at the, you know, right out of the gate they're misunderstood or people will misconstrue what they're trying to say or what their position is and then their art or product become is rendered obsolete yeah and that is a sad thing for me oh my goodness that's a
0: whole other podcast we're gonna do because i just had all kinds of thoughts go through my head that i want to talk to you about the emotional
1: state of trends
0: oh Stay tuned. Um, When you were talking about uh, the era of Bush, that couldn't help but make me think about, you know, we're in a very interesting time, um, both with Trump and, and frankly, with Trudeau. Like, you can kind of look at, uh, you know, the U.S. and Canada in two very different ways. So with the, um, the strong political influence in the United States, what do you think are some big, like, four or five trends that we're going to see as a result of of Um, that or maybe not as a result
1: of that uh, but in reaction to that I was hoping you know it's funny because whenever when it was like when it was possible the possibility of it being her turn in office I thought it was going to be pantsuits aplenty (laughs) (laughs) pantsuits I'm still doing a podcast on pantsuits but yeah Um, fashion and politics again is such a juicy topic everything and um what I mean what's happening with Melania, good for Tom Ford. Good for you. Mm-hmm. Good for the designers that don't want to be a part of that. But um, you know, again, and what Michelle brought to the table, and with J. Crew, and with uh, what being what modern ladylike dressing means. Yeah. Um, and how far do you go on embellishment? And I mean. I, th- I think that she perfectly executed eight years of being the first lady, oh, um, and in style, one hundred percent. Okay, so politics, fashion, very tightly knit. Think about all of the references to Jackie O throughout, industry, and just in this, right? Yep. La. even that, Marie Antoinette, Bob Rummel, all these things. So, yep. so there's, uh, you know, that. I like to call it, I think of it like Atelier and Fashion House and State.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, because there, there were patrons. Like, we could go way back
1: just like with paintings, right? Oh, like, absolutely. In the Court of Versailles yeah. wanting to dress like the royals. Yeah. What I will say coming out of this is that I currently am working with the client, that uh, Big Bay Street and um, client, and I'm working with some thought leaders. <laughs> and one of the things that I had recommended they never wear for any kind of headshot or anything publicly anymore is red ties and dark suits.
0: Interesting. And
1: yep. the only people who are you're going to see in that are that person's supporters mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and people who are buying into that because it's- It's become a signifier, right? It's yeah. almost like a little mustache yeah. to some people. So it's like a little mustache. What are some other trends do you uniform? think we're going to see? Um, Okay, the three biggest trends that I think we're going to see in the next five years coming to market in big ways. Number one, masks.
0: Masks. And I
1: talked about this at MIT. Masks. Masks are going to be everything. Reason being. Yeah, tell me about this. Spatial mapping innovations are giving way to lots of facial recognition technology and security, digital security systems that have facial recognition oh. systems. Now, while you or I, I explain this at MIT, will yeah. adopt it like Snapchat filters, some people will embrace this. There is going to be an entire contingency of people that are going to go against it and not want it. There are bandanas that are being... Uh, developed in Russia right now that almost like fuzzbusters yeah 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 uh, they um, they know when there's a facial recognition system and it changes pattern and color there are real life masks that look like you have ripped off like mission impossible face a off. pace of <laughs> face off exactly and We've already seen them on the runways in such a huge way already, in a decorative element. And for those who are looking at it, they're thinking, oh, it's so cool because we haven't seen masks in a while and it feels like a masquerade and it feels so lavish and opulent. But that's actually not the derivative of it because, again, we look at the bigger issues and bigger macro trends that are teaming up around the world and um, and starting to bubble and these security systems and satellite saturation and government um, systems, you know they there are they're, they're I just think I just know I know masks are going to be the biggest accessory and category over the next five years. Okay, Blow
0: blowing my mind a little bit. Yeah. What are the other
1: two? Um, fabs. I'm calling What is a Hapfab? fab are haptic fabrics, so haptic technologies uh, are like when you can feel and sense something or it can draw data gotcha. from something, so biohacking, like a Fitbit, it can draw data of like uh, okay. your, your, your so different fit, systems. Like a
0: Fitbit, but a shirt, like that,
1: to really drill it down a right, little bit. Right, but I think some hap fabs are going to go even further and i'm talking about material innovation so like let's say where dupont might find um you know discover um reusable or remendable fabric and spin that into yarn and then have that become to a mill and then let's say lululemon from there buys that and then we have this new stretchable fabric Mm. but what if that material um, I think that HAPFABs are now not only going to extract information from us and sort of biohack and decode what our systems, what, what the state of them are, but I think they're also going to feed into it. I think that we're going to have things like materials that are going to um, feed nutrients into our bodies. We're looking really? at ways to absorb nutrients. Or what about if you know we are done with moisturizers and we have ones that have healing or anti-aging properties where as you're wearing the material it's kind of like could be like the bb cream of the future i don't know so half fabs okay one more and the last one is i think that modest dressing is going to become its own mega category well, and we're already seeing that a little bit with the Nike hijab and, you know, totally. Uniqlo's you know, modest dressing collection that they just released. And, and I don't think it's only from the great, uh, again, globalization mm-hmm. and, um, you know, Eastern cultures and, you know, is pe- people that buy into, you know, who are... Um, Islamic that you know want to cover up for their faith or religious reasons or Hasidic right. Jews, but it's it even goes beyond that, and I think that's also a massive the next not Normcore, but it's it's that backlash to nakedness, right, and right, sort of right. porn star dressing, right, um, and that kind of sexiness. I mean, after a while, it's like I mean, unless we're building throw robots with three three breasts I mean I, I don't know what more we can see so. it's so
0: true it's so true um Carly this has been just incredible there's so much more I want to talk to you about so we're going to have to have you back to draw on this and so many other things oh thank so you so I honest. just want to wrap up quickly with if you could wear one outfit for the rest of your days climate and practicality are not an issue what would you wear
1: Okay. Don't think too hard about it. So if I could wear one outfit, it would be designed more or less like anyone who knows me knows I'm a bit of a fancy pants. But I also have this one uniform that I have just worn throughout the years forever, which is basically almost like very minimalist. Like I wear black turtlenecks and black pencil skirts all the time. So I would like it to look sort of sleek and then have wild, beautiful, adorned, you know, interesting accessories on top of that. But what I would love to wear every day of my life is to have that be a hat fabric and be able to dive into my memory base.
0: Oh, my gosh. Okay, that's super cool. Carly, thank you so, so much for the conversation and for being here today. If people want to reach you or hear more about what they're doing, where's the best way for them to reach you on social or otherwise?
1: Um I'm a big Facebooker for more of my daily narrative, so Carly Stojic, C A R L Y S T O J S I C. On Instagram I'm at IN Carly Veritas, I N C A R L Y V E R I T A S Latin and Stojic at gmail.com. Simple. Amazing. You're so accessible. It's amazing.
0: Thank you so, so much for being here. I want to give a huge thank you to Luke Nader, our production coordinator today, and to Christian Ryan, our audio engineer. Also, of course, a big thank you to CAFA, the Canadian Arts and Fashion Awards. You can follow CAFA and find out all about what we're doing at CAFA. CAFA Awards, C A F A W A R D S. And you can follow me at This Is Donna B. If you enjoyed our episode today, which I really hope you did, please tell your friends. We love having the word spread. And if you feel inclined to give us a high five on iTunes, please rate and review us. We love hearing your feedback or any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, this is Donna Bishop
1: and this is Fashion Talks.